just so I know who I'm talking with. So, Seth. Jamie. Can somebody close the door? Thank you. Cool. So, uh, welcome to class today, everybody. How are y'all doing? Yeah, you happy it's Friday? Um, yes. Yes? <laughs> Would you rather it be a Monday? <laughs> Every day is a come. Every day is a come. That's a good approach. Um, so yeah, so my name is Seth, nice to meet you guys. I'm from Andover, Massachusetts, originally. Has anybody been to Andover by any chance? Oh my gosh, is anybody from Andover? Um, so yeah, I went through the Andover school system, more or less a normal kid, I guess. And um, went to college, I went to university to study physics, and then actually I switched to fine arts. And then when I graduated, I flew to Germany and went into a Buddhist monastery. So, if you guys could imagine, how old are you now? 30. 30? 19, 19, 19, 19. 19. 19. So between 19 and 30. So when I was 22, I went into the monastery, and then I stayed there in Germany until I was 30. So like that was my 20s, pretty much. Um, so like, yeah, one solid year of legal drinking and then it was done. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I spent then eight years in this monastery, ordained as a monk. Um, so I think I had a midlife crisis when I was 13 years old. Um, it was around the time like the movie Fight Club came out and, um, I just remember looking at the world around me and not really seeing much promise in terms of what did I want to do in the world. Nothing really made sense for me. Um, and also, I didn't like the world I saw around me. Um, and I saw a lot of people running in some kind of an empty cycle where they would, you know, get up in the morning, grab their Dunkin's coffee, you know, go to work, work all day, go home, kind of. I don't know what, take care of everything, fall asleep, wake up, go back to work. And that was kind of it, right? And then on the weekends, maybe they'd sit and drink and, you know, kind of veg out on the couch or do something to recover, to kind of blow off steam because they had to work all week and then go back to work. So it was almost this cycle of um, just trying to survive or get by, and it seemed very empty. It felt very empty. And that was terrifying to me. I felt terrified. Um, to, to enter in a life like that. I thought, I can't do that. I really felt like I would die. Just thinking about that, I felt like I would die. It was a horrible feeling. Um, so, so, yeah, when I got into, I went to college for physics because it seemed like a promising kind of thing to do somehow, and I was interested in it, how the world worked. But, um, but really quickly, I said, you know what? I'm going to follow my happiness instead of following kind of like what I should be doing. So then I started doing art, which 
then over time I realized art is also a way of understanding the world, but it's really starting with your own subjective experience of things. So it's not talking about the world out there, like physics was so much, but it's really about how do I see the world, how do I interact to the world. And you create a piece of art, you put it out, and then other people talk about it, and then you see new things about yourself that you wouldn't have seen if you had kept all that stuff inside. Right? So it's about communication also, really a deep level of communication. So it was really fascinating. And it was during that time when I was in college that I actually met a monk. So a monk came to our school and gave a talk. And, um, and everything he said, it was just hitting me right in the heart. It was really... Um, so I, I had just come from art class, so I had this big kind of sketchbook. You know, and I went and I just like, kind of saw this flyer for this talk. And I went and I sat in the back of this big auditorium and he was talking. And he was saying like amazing things, so I started taking notes. And then by the end of the thing, this whole huge sketchbook, it was just covered in notes that I had taken from what he was talking about. And it was really the feeling of coming home. Like it felt something was so familiar to me. And so it's like this is what I was looking for all these years, right? So whether I was like doing philosophy or whether I was like, you know, taking drugs or whether I was in art class or whether I was reading physics books or whatever I was doing, all of the things that I was trying to... Um, all the paths I was pursuing, I was actually only just trying to get back to myself. And here was somebody sitting in front of me, like, just speaking straight into that, like, here's how to get back to yourself. And I just felt that, you know, like, all of the unclarity, all of the bullshit, all of the kind of confusion, it all kind of just dropped away. And I realized that what I was looking for was actually spirituality, and it wasn't any of this other stuff. So, um... So I began practicing, so he came back every few months um, to, our, to our school, and I would practice with him, and he led some like workshops and things like this. And then when I graduated from school, he invited me to come to his monastery in Germany to visit. Um, and I first you know, jumped in my car and drove cross-country. I just drove to California just to like, see and drove back. And, um, and then I said, okay, I'll come visit. You know, and I thought I'd be there for three months. Um, but I only had enough money for one-way tickets, so whatever. But, um, yeah, so I went there, and then I just, you know, the more that I was there, the more I saw how deep this rabbit hole goes, that when you really start coming back into yourself, the layers and layers and layers of stuff that I had to work through, um, I saw that that's not three months of work, that's, like, probably even a lifetime of work. But I really felt, you know what, um, at the time that I went to the monastery, I felt like my, my family life, like my parents, like my relationship with them was kind of falling apart. I just got out of school. I had no idea what I wanted to do. So my life, I felt, was kind of falling apart. I had a girlfriend at the time. We were, like, fighting a lot. So it, it felt like everything around me was kind of falling apart at once. And as I left to Germany, it was almost like, um, did anyone see that movie 2012? It came out some years back. And there's, like, this one scene, like, there's, like, the end of the world, right? So there's a big earthquake. So, um, so the the plane, they're on like a plane, there's one scene, I think this actually happens a couple times in the movie, but anyway, they're on like a plane, and as the plane is kind of going down the runway and taking off, the ground underneath the plane is kind of cracking and falling away, and then the plane's kind of like taking off, like, to safety. So it kind of felt like that for me. Um, I kind of had this feeling that I was leaving all of the stuff behind that was falling apart. No worries. So at the monastery, while I was there, I started really reflecting on all of this stuff. And I kind of started seeing how, um, how, 
how my life was falling apart was actually my fault. How I actually created it. And, um, and I kind of had this image in my mind that it was like, you know, I was wearing, uh, like I was wearing sunglasses, but they were colored, I don't know, whatever color, red colored sunglasses. So everywhere I looked, I was seeing the same thing. I was seeing the same kind of distortion around me everywhere I'd look. And then I really thought, you know what? I could keep running away. I could keep going, traveling the world, doing all this stuff, whatever. But ultimately, as long as I'm wearing those red glasses, everywhere I look, I'm just going to see red. So it actually makes sense to, to find the place that I can finally take those glasses off and see things clearly. And that's kind of what it was about for me. So I just stayed in the monastery. I stayed and I was a monk and I just stayed there. And so I really felt like I had kind of put that down, that I had found kind of my sense of clarity. Um, and then by the time that I felt good about that, I felt that my life at the monastery then started to fall apart after eight years. So then I felt like I kind of did it again. And I felt like, okay, my time here is finished. I've, I've got what I needed to get here. And then I actually went to India and I spent the next six months traveling alone through India. Uh, then I went to Australia for three months. Flew to Australia, went to a monastery. I so did a three-month retreat in Australia. Um, came back here for like two months. Started teaching at MIT and, and at Andover High School. I started leading some classes. Um, and then I felt that something still wasn't quite right. So I got back on a plane, went back to India. And pretty much the day that I arrived in India, I disrobed. So I took off my robe and I said, you know what? Um, I don't want to be in the confines of this anymore. I don't, I don't want to be in a, in a form. I felt that I was in that form for training purposes. I felt like I really needed to be in that monk form uh, to go through a certain development process. But then I felt like it was actually now getting in the way of my process, of the next level of growth that I had to make. So then I disrobed, and then I spent the next eight months traveling alone through India, traveling from south to north. Um, I was not naked. <laughs> Good question. There were many naked people in India. Um, yeah, and now I've, I've kind of found my way back here. And, um, and when I came back, I kind of said, okay, I have this, you know, body of knowledge about meditation, about personal development, about just life processes. Um, and I didn't really know what to do with that. I felt that that had brought me through these great transformations. So I kind of just arrived back here and I kind of just looked around and I said, you know, this is what I've got. This is who I am. This is where I've been. And it was actually schools that reached out to me um, to say, can you come and help the kids? Because there's like the huge opiate ep epidemic happening in our country. And there's a lot of kids on medication, a lot of kids with anxiety and depression. <coughs> the schools really think that, um, mindfulness, meditation, emotional training, that's the way forward. So I'm now actually, I go into schools and talk to like middle schoolers, high schoolers, lead meditation for them, and also teachers. So I'm actually training teachers to practice this and to bring it into their schools. So I'm part of the shift that they're really shifting like what public schools actually look like, what, what it is that they're teaching. Realizing that kids or people, we're not machines, we're not robots, we're not just there to, to be productive and efficient working machines um, because that's why everybody's breaking because we're not machines we have feelings we're, we have many other dimensions besides how productive we are so schools are starting to realize that in a very fundamental level and they're starting to look how can we support people emotionally 
And so that's the work that I'm also doing. So that's kind of that whole path. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no applause necessary. Because, because actually, all that I've done is I've followed my heart. All that I've ever done is I've just followed for myself what I felt like the next step was that I wanted to do. And it's funny because when I was in, um, you know, I remember when I was in elementary school even, I was like that one kid in the class that always talked out and like get kicked out a lot. So I had like the special system with the teacher. If I didn't talk out for a day, I got like a little fuzzy ball in a jar. And if, by the end of the week, I had like five fuzzy balls. I got like a piece of candy or something, you know, like that kind of stuff. So, you know, so I was, I was that kid, right? So, um, so, yeah, all through elementary school, my mom was like, you know, you're never going to, you know, you have to shape up or you're going to crash in middle school. And I was in middle school, you have to shape up. Or high school, you're not going to be able to do it. And I was in high school, you have to shape up, you're not going to get into college. I was in college, you got to shape up. because. So it was like I had these, this constant kind of impulses that you, you, I have to be better. I have to do something different to succeed in the world. That, that something, I have to be better. I have to do more. And in college, I really I made the shift for myself where I was like, you know what? I don't think it's about being more, being better being out there somewhere, I said, I think it's actually more about living from here. And so I made that shift from physics to doing art, to being a fine arts major, because I said, I want to sit and play with clay. I don't want to be in math class. Like, fuck that, right? Like, I want to I have fun. I want to enjoy this. I've had enough of school, right? I want to do something that's fun for me. And I made that shift, and it was, again, one of those shifts where everyone around me at the time, you know, as much as they thought, oh, that's cool, they probably also thought, what do you, you know, Graduating with a major in fine arts, you don't get a job, you know. So, but I did that because that's what I wanted, even though the voices around me maybe were saying, like, that there's no future in that. And then I became a monk, which then also all the voices around me were like, what do you want to, like, there's no future in that, right? And then eventually when I had kind of made it as a monk, when I'd been a monk for enough years, I left that. And they're like, what do you mean you're leaving the monastery? You just built up this whole thing for yourself. There's no future back, you know. So it's like again and again and again having to go through these walls of, of, you know, what other people think or what society is telling me or what all these kind of voices or messages are and really just saying, like, no, this is the next thing that I want to do for myself. This is what feels good to me. And, um, and I feel that I live a great life. I mean, I, I set my own schedule. I'm, I work for myself. I'm free mostly every day. I teach at night. Um, you know, I travel the world. Like, it's awesome. So I really... And, and at any moment, I can drop all of it and go somewhere else and do something else. So I think that ultimately, there's a kind of, um, a kind of blanket over a lot of our minds in terms of what life is about, what we're able to do, what we're allowed to do. Um, and that blanket is the views and opinions and voices of our social kind of context, our social understanding. But, um, but you don't have to listen to that. And there really is a way. If you just do whatever you want, and whatever that means, like, it's possible, right? So, um, so that's just another really important thing that I learned, that, that ultimately when you kind of just step-by-step step follow your heart, and I didn't know what I wanted to do, right? So it's not like... I, I've never really been able to see more than maybe a couple months ahead of me, right? It's not like I woke up and I knew what I was going to do one day. Like, so that's another kind of lie that we're supposed to know, like especially 
kids in college, like, you're supposed to somehow know what you want to do when you get out of college. Like, fuck that. Like, you're an evolving, growing being. You're, you're not supposed to know anything. You're supposed to be making experiences and feeling what feels good. What do you want to do? What do you want to pursue? Whatever that is. And continue doing that. And continue just following what you want to do. And you'll piece it together, you know. Um, try not to compromise. I know some of us are in situations where we kind of have to compromise a little bit more than others. Um, but do your best really not to compromise and stick to your guns and just kind of go the way that you want to go and, and give it a chance. And, uh, and you'd be surprised that you can really do what you want with your life. So this is also a big... Because like when I was looking up here, right, when we talk about you know, whether peace and harmony in our lives or even the congruency between the values and actions. So congruency between values and actions, that's called integrity. Right, so living in integrity, that's when your inner values, so what you feel, what you actually really deeply feel, and what you're doing are the same thing. That's called integrity. That's the actual definition of integrity. Right, so from inside to outside, it's one thing. It's the same thing. So to live in your integrity, the common purpose that binds creation, so I don't know about that. That seems a little bit like a religious thing, so I'd scratch that off. So I don't know whose definition this is, but I don't agree with that part exactly. But I would say that there is a common there's a commonality in terms of the fact that we all have hearts. Every one of you has a good human heart that has love, that has wishes, that has hopes, that has things that it wants to do that makes it happy. This is kind of the Dalai Lama. He comes from that place where he realizes that every single person is a good person. They have a good heart. They want to be happy. A lot of people do stupid things. We make stupid choices. You know, but that's the choice. That's the action. But the people are good. People are good. Sometimes people do bad things, but people are good. And there's this commonality that actually everybody wants to be happy. Everybody really wants to follow that. And something really fascinating happens is that when you start really activating your heart in your life, when you start living your life more fully with your heart, it starts to kind of resonate out around you. And people feel that about you. And just crazy opportunities come and things come. And it's almost like you open up a magnet that starts like drawing things towards you. Or it opens up something that starts resonating stuff around you. So... If anything, I would just say that realizing how connected everything is, and we all are, the more that you get in touch with your integrity, the more you also start touching the integrity in other people. And they, it starts to help them wake up, too, and follow what they want to do, right? So it's all kind of connected on that level. And ultimately, if you want something called peace and harmony with your life, and I think this is a really important point, but I think in our society, it's taken very, very superficially. A lot of people think peace and harmony means having a family, having a house, having Netflix, getting to complain on Facebook if you don't like something, right? getting to watch football every Sunday, whatever. Yet, they think that, that peace and harmony is, is being comfortable. Right? A lot of people, they, they pursue a life of comfort and a life of security. And then they sit there in this place where they're not really alive, they're not really dead they're kind of just going through the motions of what's next but there's not like a real deep joy and I'm sure when you look around like joy is not something you see a lot of in our society people are just joyful feel alive like really alive um, so peace and harmony again often is mistaken for again in our culture comfort security obedience right to have a harmonious classroom in school that means all the students are obedient Right? So actually, the, the whole structure of schools was created, um, how, how our schools work, was actually created by the factory workers. So we're in Lowell, it's a good place to talk about this. 
Yeah, so it's actually a factory mentality. The kids go into the classroom, right? There's a bell, they go to the next station. There's a bell, they go to the next station. If you exceed, you get praise. If you don't do good, you get punished, you're kicked out. It was actually training kids to work in the factories afterwards. So the whole model of school that we follow in terms of like public school, like middle school, things like this, is actually kind of like that, like a factory mentality. I feel at college, it gets a little bit different. It keeps that as a base a little bit, but it's different in a lot of other ways. But when you think about peace and harmony, peace and harmony, right, if you also you look at the political situation right now, right? So there was that big woman's march in Boston, right? So I went to that woman's march in Boston. That was not peace and harmony in terms of all those people were standing up against a government that they did not feel represented them anymore. That they were standing up against values that they were feeling were, were encroaching around them and that that's not what they wanted. So these people were standing up and, and speaking their voice. They were, that was an act of conflict, right? A protest is an act of conflict, but with the goal to create peace and harmony as an end result. And this is the other thing that's important, that a lot of people, they try to maintain peace and harmony around them at all times. But if you're doing that, then how are you ever going to really break through things that are not okay? How are you going to rise up and stand up if something needs to be spoken or said or changed? So conflict is actually really amazing and important. Without conflict, there's no movement, right? So I would also say that the ability to establish peace and harmony, I would say that's more of an inner peace and an inner harmony in terms of you know you're doing the right thing. Because again, when I went to that protest and I was holding a big sign and I was screaming, there was nothing about the external thing that was peaceful or harmonious. And even internally, I was really angry. But it was a, a good anger. That anger felt good. It was honest. I felt at peace with myself because I was able to honestly express my anger. Right? So this stuff all really takes on a whole new meaning. Right? So being peaceful, it actually means living your integrity. And that's kind of what I was talking about before, like why I went to the monastery and all this stuff. Because I was following my integrity, and it was terrifying. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I was really scared. Really, really, really scared. Many times in my life, very, very scared. But I knew that that's what I have to do. I didn't have a choice. I said, if, I'm, if I want to be honest with myself, this is the step I have to make. This is the step I have to make. So often following a path of integrity actually leads us into having panic attacks. You know, because you'll jump into something that you're like, what the hell am I doing here? But you just know for yourself that's what I need to do. Right? So it kind of reframes all that stuff. Does this all make sense to you guys? Uh, okay, so, yeah, questions or... <laughs> what did your parents say when uh, they found out you were flying to Germany to become a monk? Um, well, I told them I was only going to go for three months. <laughs> um, but my teacher is actually quite skillful, so when I asked him to ordain as a monk, he said, sure, but you need your parents' permission. So he actually made me fly back home and then ask my parents... My mom said, this isn't the life that I would have chosen for you, but if that's what you want, okay. And my dad said no. He was a little creeped out. Also, our, our family is Jewish. And um, so coming from uh, a, a, a certain religious background and me saying that I want to become a Buddhist, um, because Judaism, it's also it's a religion, but also a culture. It's like we're also a people, we're an ethnicity, right? Um, so 
he kind of gave me then this big speech about Judaism and how important it is to him and, and all these things. And after listening for like an hour, I kind of just said, you know what? You don't care about me. And it kind of like shocked him a little bit. Um, and I just said, you know, it's, and I know that he cares about me, right? But it was more, and then I said, you know what? Like, this is about me. This is about me. And then he kind of like heard that. And then he said, oh, you know, and then the next day he gave me permission to be a mom. So I also had to stand up for myself. And I had to break, actually, my role as being a child who's being told what to do and really stand up for myself as an adult and say, this is what I want to do with my life, you know. And when I think that my parents were able to feel that I was really owning my life, that's when then they gave me the allowance. Because then I was, I was taking the consequences. And I think that's when the role of the parent shifts. When you kind of step up, right, when the bird gets, jumps out of the nest or gets kicked out of the nest and it has to learn how to use its wings. That was kind of me saying, like, I'm ready to use my own wings now. And I think ultimately when a parent feels that you're taking that responsibility for your life, they're able to let go and kind of support you. Yeah. You were the only one. I am calling question? on you. You have two seconds to ask your question or I move on. No. All right, okay. I just wanted to say that you made a very good choice to go to Germany. I agree. Yeah. 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 So we actually had some some monks in the monastery. One of them was um, fifteen, and one of them was his parents actually get, like brought him to the monastery when he was one year old. So he's Vietnamese. So in Asian cultures, this is also very normal that, like in Tibet and Thailand and Burma, that. It's actually an honor for the family when, when one of the children goes into the monastery and becomes a monk. Um, so they were both in the Waldorf school, the Rudolf Steiner school. And, uh, and it was awesome. It was like building, there's like no right angles, and there's a piano in the hallway, and they have movement classes and all this stuff. So, you know, part of their senior year for a semester, they went and worked at a circus <laughs> and learned circus acts and stuff like this. And they had like a farm outside. So really cool, um, beautiful model of education where they really taught the kids life skills, taught them how to be in touch with themselves emotionally. Yeah, really cool. And the same teachers have the same students for all the years. So you're with the same teacher and the same kids for your whole, either the whole, I think at least the whole elementary, if not even, yeah, until high school. So really interesting. Yeah. So like, how, like, how did you get the money to travel like, everywhere? Sure. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, when I first flew to Germany, that was all the money that I had. That was like, I don't know, $500 or something, $600. And that was all my money. And then I flew to Germany. I had no money. So I lived in, in the monastery with no money for eight years. And then when I wanted to leave, I said to the community, and there was many, many people that would come, and I said, you know, I've been here for eight years. I've been teaching a lot. I've been helping a lot. I've been serving a lot. Now I want to do this, and I ask if anyone can support me. You know, I would I'd need some support. So I received like $8,000 through different people like over the course of like a year of asking. And then, um, and then I went to India. India, it's probably the cheapest place in the world to live that I know of anyway. It was like $7 a day 
would you'd live like it, you live well on seven dollars a day. There were times in India where I was living on fifty cents a day. Well, I would live. I lived in a monastery. I slept on the floor of one of my friends. He's a Tibetan monk. I slept in his room. We went downstairs. They had meals for fifty cents, rice and tea, and they just keep refilling it until you're done. We'd have one meal a day. Easy, yeah. Um, but yeah, you could do like you can rent a place to live, have three full meals uh, for like seven dollars, and so that money really could spread out for a while. And then I flew to Australia, so I had to pay the plane ticket. In Australia, I lived in a monastery, so it was free again. Yeah, I flew back here. I taught a little bit, so I got a little bit of money through you know teaching and things like this. Um, flew back to India, same thing. So this was all still pretty much the same eight thousand dollars that I was riding on. So I felt like I was a, a polar bear, like on the iceberg, and it was slowly shrinking under my feet. You know? So I felt like I had this much money, and it was like slow. So I started to get like some panic in India, because so I was like, oh my god. But yeah, anyway, India was it's still super cheap. And then I went back to Australia. I went back to Australia, and then I worked on a, a peach farm a little bit. So two days a week for like eighteen dollars an hour, like picking peaches and stuff, which is like hanging out outside. <laughs> yeah, I mean whatever, you know. Yeah, and I could eat peaches sometimes. And um, and then I came back here. Yeah, so I mean, so for me, so eight, $8,000, I was able to stretch that for two years, to live for two years traveling. So do you, like, agree that, like, money is important for happiness, right? Like, you know, like, I'm not saying it's the key for happiness, but, like, it's one of the key. Um, I think that, you know... To feel secure, to feel like safe, I think really gives us a big foundation of happiness. And in our society, to feel that security and safety, you either need to have money or you need to have a way that you know money's coming in that you could feel like okay. So this is just like speaking just realistically here. Um, that being said, when I was in India, I remember I was at, in India one night, I was at this temple, like walking at this temple, this big Hindu temple, and they're inside like, like all the stuff was happening, it was really cool. <coughs> it was like, I don't know, 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night, so the temple was kind of closing, all the people were leaving. And I see this one guy, this one Indian guy, leaves the temple, and it, you know, like, so there's this big temple, this is all kind of like the stone, like these stone slabs. And then there's like a little like stone wall and then kind of like more stone stuff and then the street like down there somewhere. This one guy, he like walks out of the temple, you know, he has his like, um, like a blanket wrapped around him like this, right? So he kind of like comes out of the temple, you know, just kind of comes out and here's like the stone wall and he just does this. He just sits down and then he looks and I'm standing there like looking at him and he just goes. And he had like the biggest, most beautiful smile on his face, just so peaceful and he's like, and he just lay down right there and put the blanket over him, and that's where he slept for the night, right there. So I imagine that man had zero money. I imagine he had zero money. I imagine that he was very devoted, that he went to the temples, that the temples give food, and then he just slept right there on the stone with his blanket. And that was it. And he was honestly one of the most peaceful people I've ever seen. Like It was a deep, like a real deep feeling of peace that I still remember. Just by seeing him smile and look at me, I... I felt like that's what I want for myself, you know, and I think that because I was saying that security, having that kind of feeling of security, it's the basis for happiness in a lot of ways, that man realized that security is not when you have something, security is when you've let go of everything, because when you're homeless, the whole world becomes your home, 
you know, he realized he could sleep anywhere. You know, he knew that there's where I go for food and I could sleep wherever I want. What else do I need? And he was just happy to be alive. So the happiest people that I've ever seen, and I'll tell you, so I've been everywhere. I've really been all over the world. I've met, and I've spent time with the poorest people you can, I would sit with the street children in India who are like covered in dirt, who are burning like styrofoam to stay warm. Like, and I would like spend time every day with these kids, like hanging out with them. You know, and also like I've been to like amazing Swiss chalet resorts with like businessmen and like millionaires and people like running the world and doing stuff like this. So I've been with everybody. Like I've really been top to bottom of the kind of social ladder. And I could say that I have found these beautiful, happy, shining people everywhere. I found that the rich people, that their happiness depends on their sense of purpose that they're only happy if they're serving the world or doing something good for the world. Then I see they feel happy. When they're not doing something good for the world, they're miserable. And I've seen this very clearly. The poor people, I've seen both poor people that are like, they, they're like hungry ghosts. It's like these like weird kind of like, you know, like they're in this place of like need, like, like constant help me desperation kind of feeling. And then I've seen poor people like that man. And I've seen that when people are really poor, their sense of happiness actually depends on how much they feel a sense of contentment with their situation versus how much they want something else. Because if you have nothing but you want something, that's suffering. If you have nothing and you're fine with having nothing, then there's no problem anymore. And then you can really just be happy. You know? And for all you know, once you're happy and you're smiling, maybe like, you'll go and make friends or someone will want to support you or get a job. If you're like, walking around like, in desperation, like, a, like with a wild animal look in your eyes, people are going to kind of push you away. So you also kind of create the reactions you get from other people through your own inner mindset, which is also really interesting, that, that depending on your relationship to the world, you actually create results. Yeah, so, yeah. So in this situation, it means you are not ready to have any responsibilities, like have kids or nothing. You are just okay with yourself, with you, yourself, and you. As a monk or what? Yeah, maybe, or oh, a homeless person or something. You're not ready for any responsibilities, because if you have kids, what are they going to eat? Yeah. you tell them to sleep on the floor with you? What? I mean, I don't think it's, it's that black and white in a way. I think um, those people have to look at their situation and see. Just them and them alone. No, I mean, like, if one of those people wants to have kids or have a family, then they have to, for themselves, look at how that could work, or does that work or not. Um, I, I agree that their amount of responsibilities starts to lessen the more simple you live, the less you have. But that's also a good thing, because, for instance, if I, um, if I buy a hundred new cars, yeah? Now I'm responsible to take care of a hundred cars, to make sure the engines are running, make sure there's oil, make sure there's gas, make sure they're clean, find a place to store them. So the more things I have, the more complicated my life becomes and the more responsibilities I have. The more that I only have what I need, the more I can just relax, focus on this, and I'm, and I'm responsible for less and less. If you're homeless and you're just going to an ashram and then sleeping on the street, you're then only responsible, right, that you have a place to sleep and you have food. If you then have a family or kids, 
then you're responsible for the well-being of that family. But that's still a very small circle of responsibilities. And, um, and it's, again, just up to each person to look at their situation and see, is it possible or not? Um, there were homeless families. There were families that I saw that they lived in little shacks, you know, and the kids... And those were the kids that I played with, like, the kids living on the street, was that their families lived in little shacks. Um, I don't know. Those kids were really happy. As much as their lives seemed really hard, they had huge smiles the whole time. So it was kind of... It's, it's strange. It's hard to judge. It's hard to say what's right or what's wrong, or, you know. So, um, this class goes till 11? 10 20. 10 20. Oh my god, 10 minutes. Okay, sorry. That make me more happy? 11 would have made me more happy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, because A, I was going to say, like, I have actually a ton of stuff that I could talk to you guys about. But also, I actually wanted to do a meditation with you guys. Do it. <laughs> okay, so, well, now we only, yeah, we have like eight minutes. Okay, you guys want to do an eight minute meditation together? Yeah, totally. Cool. Yes. Does anybody yeah. not want to do a meditation? You don't want to do? No. No. I don't. You can you can observe. Maybe. You will do it. Okay. 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 So the first thing I was gonna say, if you you have a phone, to turn off your phones. <laughs> Just have to take it off. But this this really creates like a mental that you cut off because meditation it's really about coming back here to the space you're physically in, being present. So this is like a really nice sign of like cutting off something that's like external. Okay, now I'm here. Sorry, Danielle. Oh. Sorry, sorry Danielle. Sorry, Danielle. Danielle, I'm sorry too. Okay. Has anybody ever meditated before? Just oh wow. Okay. Yoga. Yoga. So if you if you want, you could clear your desk off. I don't know if that helps you feel more like. Clear desk is clear mind, maybe. I always do this in middle school. I don't know. I'm in front of the kids. I'm like, all right, everyone clear off your desk. And they have these huge binders and math books. And okay. So I'm going to ask you guys to sit with your feet flat on the floor. Okay. Feet flat on the floor. And if you can, kind of sit a little bit upright, right? So kind of sitting awake. So our body language, it's assigned to ourselves, right? It really brings the mind into a certain place. Okay, I'm sitting upright. So meditation, it's really easy. There's not much to it. It's really just about being, right? We're human beings. So it's like focusing on the being part. Right? It's just about being. Um, but I'll guide us through it. So the first thing that I'll ask you to do is kind of, you can let your eyes kind of gaze to the middle of the room, maybe the floor even, and let your, let your eyes go out of focus. So you kind of, 
see everything at once without looking at anything in specific. And as you do that, kind of feel your body sitting here. So I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. And I brought with me a bell. So I'm going to ring the bell a couple times. All you have to do is listen to the sound of the bell. Okay, so close your eyes and just listen. Taking deep breaths in through the nose, out through the mouth. So breathing deeply, breathing fully. And you've closed your eyes, and you're going to relax your eyes. And you're going to relax the muscles in your face. Relax your jaw. So we're just going to go through the body. So you relax your shoulders and arms and hands. Relaxing your fingers. And try to feel all ten fingertips without moving your hands. So we relax our chest and stomach. You can take some deep breaths to help relax down into your stomach. Softening the muscles in our back. Relaxing our hips and legs. Down to our feet. Feeling all ten of your toes without moving your feet. So really send your mind down into your toes.
and feel the ground underneath your feet. And now opening up the mind, getting a sense for the space around you. So opening up your mind, feeling the space around you. As you sit in that space, begin breathing, feeling the breath flowing in through the nose, filling the body, feeling the breath flowing out through the nose, the body relaxes. So really taking some conscious breaths, this is training contentment, learning how to be comfortable with ourselves learning how to be. Feeling the air flowing in through the nose, the body expands. Feeling the air flowing out through the nose, the body relaxes. Just breathing like this for a few moments. Relaxing. Seeing how much you can let go. Seeing how much you can enjoy having nothing to do. Allowing the mind a time of rest. Listening again to three sounds of the bell.
Taking three last deep breaths in through the nose, out through your mouth, really filling your body up as you breathe in, really releasing in the exhalation. So again, deep breath in, filling your body, and out through your mouth. And one last time, deep, deep, deep in through your nose, filling your body as much as possible, and then holding your breath for one second, two seconds, and then out through your mouth, releasing, relaxing. So you rub your hands together, so your hands become warm. Warm up your hands. And you put your hands on your eyes. You can rub your eyes, rub your face. Rub your head and your ears. You can massage down the back of your neck, your shoulders. You can rub your back and slowly open up your eyes. Stretch out if you need to. So that was a, actually a very, very short meditation. That was like six minutes, seven minutes. Um, I can sit up to three hours when I meditate just because you get into that state and it gets so peaceful, you just sink deeper and deeper and deeper and it feels great. Um, so I would encourage you guys, if anybody's interested, to try meditating by themselves. As you see, it's super easy. You just sit, relax, and breathe. Uh, I guarantee if you do it every day for one week, so if you just say for one week, I call it like the meditation challenge. If you meditate for one week every day for five minutes, it'll change your life. And I mean this really. I'm not selling anything, so it's not like... But it'll literally change your life because you start to create a new space in your mind. And that starts to shift everything else. So... Um, yeah, otherwise, I guess that's, that's what I had to say. Um, I recorded today's talk, so I have on iTunes, I made a podcast, so I can put it on, so if anybody wants to listen to it, it's like free, whatever. Just that you can get back in touch with the information if you want to rehear anything that was said. And I also teach meditation a lot, and I've been recording some of those, so there's like different stuff you could listen to from me, so feel free to... What's that? That's on your podcast, too. Yeah. So it's all, if you go to iTunes Story, type in Seth Monk, it's all free, and it's just the talks I've been giving. So, Yeah, so thank you guys for being here. It's really a pleasure. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much. Before you leave, I know we're keeping you. Um, your reflection assignment this week.